Welcome to The Remarkables, Grant Thornton's podcast that seeks to uncover stories about remarkable people doing incredible things for their community, bettering the world for future generations and inspiring others to do the same. I'm Rebecca Archer and today I'm joined by one of Australia's leading sustainability experts, Dr Monique Retamal. Dr Retamal is the Research Director at the Institute for Sustainable Futures within the University of Technology, Sydney, specialising in sustainable consumption and production and the circular economy in the Asia-Pacific region. Her recent research has focused on the sustainability of packaging and plastics, the clothing industry, metals and e-waste and policies for a circular economy. Welcome, Dr. Retamal. It's so wonderful to have you on our podcast and thank you very much for taking time out of what must be a very busy schedule to speak with us about some of the important projects and initiatives that you're working on. Your recent research into the fashion industry uncovered some very alarming figures about clothes and textiles wastage and the impact that has on the environment. Can you elaborate a bit on those findings, please? Our research really tapped into a lot of the research that's out there about the impacts of the textile and garment industry. And we were really looking about what governments and industries and consumers should do about it. So that research was particularly around trying to envision a future for the fashion industry, which is about well a well-being economy. But some of those stats are, are pretty alarming, in particular, the rapid rate with which we are consuming and disposing of clothing. A study by the Ellen MacArthur Foundation found that between 2000 and 2015, clothing production doubled. And at the same time, our use of that clothing went down by nearly half. So we use each item of clothing about 40% less before we dispose of them. And that's, you know, compared to prior to 2000. So there's been a rapid increase in our consumption of clothing. And all of that's concerning because of the waste that it produces, but also the impacts, the production of clothing is an extremely polluting industry. It's it's done in countries where they kind of struggle to manage their regulations around, you know, discharges to the environment. And also there is a lot of issues around labor rights and, and there's a lot of work ongoing to improve that industry. So that's happening. But the current rate at which we're consuming clothing has a real impact on our sort of global carbon budget. So at the rate that we're going, the production of new clothing is set to use about 25% of our global carbon budget if we want to limit warming to two degrees by 2050. So that's a huge proportion. There are so many other industries and, and needs we have in society. So it's clear that we need to address this. I guess just taking one step back, what's behind this move to very ultra fast fashion, I suppose? And what do you attribute to the dramatic increase in that over the last 20 years or so? It will be a, a number of things. Partly it's producers, there's so much more competition out there. Producers need to make more money. There's very small margins to be made for the producers of clothing on each item of clothing. So it's um, it's better to sell more and, and sort of that, there's been a huge shift as well on social media with kind of marketing clothes through Instagram and the role of influencers and that kind of thing as well. But I think we've just 
slowly adapted to this culture, I think, of, of, of consuming clothes faster. And I know that, you know, fast fashion is designed to be, each item's designed to be worn seven times and, and the quality is often reflective of that. So we have clothing that is less durable now as well. So it's challenging. <laughs> Could you explain the concept of what a well-being wardrobe actually is? This phrase that's around and people might have heard of it, but not really fully understood exactly what it comprises. Yeah, it's it's a really interesting one. And I think it's kind of topical as well, because our new treasurer in the Australian government is very keen to drive a, a well-being economy. Um, so this is becoming a very kind of important concept. But uh, we actually were commissioned to do this work by the European Environmental Bureau. And they were interested to develop this idea of a well-being wardrobe. And this is the idea of, of moving the fashion industry towards a well-being economy. And we were kind of conceptualizing that, I guess, theoretically, and then working with the fashion industry and stakeholders in, in Europe and Asia to understand, you know, what it would look like on the ground, basically. And so there's kind of some key principles, and they are about the need to operate within planetary boundaries and ecological limits, that there are some limits. Uh, we can't keep producing and consuming at ever faster rates. We need to do something about that. The next principle was about enabling fairness, and that's kind of uh, across supply chains and intergenerationally. And we know there's a lot of labor issues in, in the supply chains. There's also the need to enable participation in governance because there is a lot of power imbalance. And the final one was about embracing new systems of exchange and new business models. So, you know, we have our, you know, secondhand clothing, charity shops. There's also a lot of social enterprise and not-for-profits. There's cooperatives. There's kind of peer-to-peer -peer, uh, models. There's also sharing and collaborative consumption. So there's there's a wide range of kind of alternative means of providing clothing. So that's kind of like, a, in a nutshell, the concept of a wellbeing wardrobe. Fantastic. Thank you for that. And I guess it's one of those things where many people are probably conscious of reducing their plastic and packaging usage. And certainly a lot of awareness raising uh, has been done around that issue. But a lot of people, I think, may not be aware of how much of an impact the clothes that they're buying actually might be having on the environment, even in the short term. How do you think you can successfully get that message across to people that fast fashion is doing a lot of damage? I think it's happening. I think for a long time, people have been aware of the kind of the ethical dimensions of clothing like people are people are concerned about you know the welfare of the people who made their clothes and I think it's coming uh, because there's a lot of momentum for more sustainable fashion there's a lot of small small enterprise um, and they're responding to demand but I think there's a there's a huge challenge out there and that I actually think there is some consumer interest and desire but there is a lack of information and it's really hard to do research to find out what um, brands are better or what clothing is better than and, and how to weigh these things up so I think yes we need more awareness raising and and that's starting to happen globally but I also think we need sort of more certification and labeling and I guess more kind of standardization around how sustainability is reported basically. Now every state and territory in Australia has now banned types of single-use plastics but I wonder if these bans are actually making a material difference as oceans of plastic keep piling up. You know, we see footage of that on the TV and in, you know, digital media as well. What real impact or benefit is there to these bans? 
I think actually some of these bands are kind of just gearing up, to be honest. So each, I think it's now each state in Australia, each state and territory has introduced single-use um, plastic bands, and that includes things like plastic bags, like the thin plastic bags. But many states are also starting to ban plastic straws, stirrers, single-use cutlery, that kind of thing. And I think ultimately that will make a difference, but some of them are, are literally just being phased in or just being implemented. And I guess the key thing with regards to how impactful they are is, is what they're replaced with. So there's been a lot of confusion out there about plastics, for example. So there are bioplastics which are made from organic materials like sugarcane or in some cases algae or I don't know sort of uh, fiber waste from agriculture and that kind of thing some of those organics can be synthesized into plastics again and they're called bioplastics and you, you'll see those around and and they're sort of marketed as as being better than regular plastics the only catch is that they also need to be compostable because plastics made from biological sources are the same as real plastics <laughs> It's all about how they break down. So compostability is really critical and in particular home compostability because there are some bioplastics out there that can be industrially composted, but they need their own collection system. They need to be processed at a, a special facility. And a lot of consumers don't realize that they, they buy their, you know, a smoothie in a big biopack plastic and think, oh, well, it's great. It's bioplastic, but it's it's only better if it's compostable basically so there are a whole range of open questions around the bands i think they could potentially include more items you know for example you know plastic bowls or plates or there are other um, plastic items which could also you know benefit from being banned but we also just need to be careful about what they're replaced with and some jurisdictions are starting to do that and take notice and they have actually banned bioplastics as well, just due to the confusion around that. So there are some challenges that are yet to be um, dealt with. And again, would that go towards what you were saying earlier about labelling as well, where people, if they understood exactly what happens to that product when it is ready to be disposed of, they might think twice about, well, oh, actually, it's not as good for the environment as I thought, or is the name perhaps made out? I think um, there's moves towards dealing with that. So the Australian Packaging Covenant has been working on labelling and, and driving really the introduction of labelling around the Australian standards. So there are Australian standards for compostability, for home compostability or industrial compostability, and those labels are um, starting to appear. But there's still so much diversity in terms of what consumers are being presented with and they don't know how to dispose of those, those plastics correctly. And, and some people, let's face it, really don't engage with it. So, and that's fair enough if they, if they don't know what to do. The system needs to be simple, basically. And at the moment, it's quite complicated. Now, around the country, most councils provide recycling bins for residents and businesses. But exactly where does our recycling actually go? What's the process? It varies a bit by state, but generally your recycling will be collected and taken to like a material recovery facility the most valuable items will be sorted out. So if you have a commingled recycling, so the cardboard book will be separated and the most kind of valuable plastics will be sorted. So for example, PET and HDPE, that's numbers one and two, which you might see on the bottom of your beverage containers, for example. 
they will be sorted and sold for recycling. However, there are a whole range of other plastics uh, which don't have much of a market value as a secondary material. And so there has been quite a challenge trying to figure out how to deal with those plastics because historically, I think between around 2000 and 2018, we were exporting mixed plastics. And so that's like all the non-valuable plastics that were sort of being bailed up and shipped overseas and they were being sorted overseas. But as you may have heard in the news around 2018, China was taking a lot of that waste and refused, well, refused uh, taking any more basically because it wasn't viable for them and was also causing environmental harm trying to manage those the huge industry of sorting uh, those plastics and doing something with them and so then the whole world shifted towards sending their mixed plastics to southeast asia and over time one by one various countries also banned the import of those plastics so the problem is that in many cases they're not even worth sorting in those countries because they don't have a value and they don't have necessarily good waste disposal systems so those plastics were often being burnt in, in sort of open in the open not incinerated they were being dumped in uncontrolled landfills and there were all kinds of associated environmental problems so that's why those countries were banning um, the import of mixed plastics and then as a consequence australia also implemented bans on the export uh, not just of plastics but of various recycling so plastics and glass and uh, cardboard for example as well as tires so there's a range of restrictions that have been phased in. And so that has created a situation where these plastics are accumulating in Australia and they have been stockpiled, they have been landfilled. So as I mentioned, the very valuable plastics are still sorted. And in particular, the container deposit schemes that we have, where we take them to the vending machine or, um, or cash them in, that creates a high quality recycling stream and, and they are still exported and, and recycled. However, these, these mixed plastics are still a problem. And the latest I've heard is in addition to the landfilling and the stockpiling, there is a movement towards compressing these plastics and other mixed recyclables into fuel bricks. And they are being exported and sold for fuel for, for example, you know, cement kilns or industrial applications overseas. So that's, it's not really the recycling that we, we hope <laughs> for um, incineration. It's an interim solution, but yeah, that's what's happening at the moment. While we wait for a domestic recycling infrastructure to be developed, because we don't really do the processing and recycling in Australia. So a lot of that infrastructure is yet to be built. And how much confusion do you think there still is in 2022 around the labelling of recycling products? Do you think in general people know which plastics are recyclable or which bottles to take to the container exchange? You know, do you think that there is a general understanding or does there need to be a better awareness raising campaign so that people really fully understand what they should be doing to recycle things in the most environmentally friendly way they can? So I think awareness is not a one-off thing. It needs to be ongoing. The systems change. As you may know, many councils are getting FOGO systems, which is the food organics and garden organics, and that's another new system. Uh, so they have changed over the years, but our practices have adapted to what was available and what was available was the ability to export everything to China without sorting it. And so we became accustomed to putting any hard plastic in the recycling, for example, 
And unfortunately, some of those plastics don't even have a number on them. So the numbering system on, on your plastics indicates the type of plastic. But there are many types of hard plastics. Say, for example, if you get a tray of biscuits, that sort of crinkly plastic often doesn't have a number, so it's unknown. Therefore, it can't be recycled, for example. So people don't know that there are hard plastics that are not recyclable. They also don't know that the numbering system is just an identification. You know, where you see the little triangle and the number, it's just identifying. It doesn't actually mean that all of those types of plastics are recycled. Uh, so yes, certainly greater awareness would help. But I guess beyond that, there's kind of more problematic things like people putting plastic bags in, like plastic bags tangle up all of the processing machines, putting nappies in their recycling, like that kind of like heavy contamination is quite problematic for, for our recycling systems as well. I certainly have to admit that when I see the little triangle, I just think, well, that's recyclable. So I just put it into the recycling bin. So I'm yeah. guilty of that too. <laughs> and, then that, and that would be fair enough. But so I guess just to give your listeners an idea, the most valuable plastics are numbers one, two, and five. The others may become more recyclable in the future. We'll You'll see it just sort of depends on on how valuable they are for secondary markets and the number seven is um is a mixed category so it's a it's all other types so that's not particularly useful for recyclers either gosh so, so much to learn here <laughs> now the notion of a circular economy is gaining real momentum you're starting to see that term used a lot more in the media in particular can you explain exactly what a circular economy is the concept really comes out of an acknowledgement that our current economy is very linear. We, you know, extract resources, we produce things, we use them, we dispose of them, and it's kind of like a one-way street. And so the circular economy is a thinking about the continuous recirculation of resources in our economy. And there are kind of three principles that are, you know, widely accepted and around the circular economy. And, and one is designing out waste and pollution so that we design our products and our systems so that waste isn't inherent and that we also aim to keep products and materials in use for as long as possible at, at a high value and that can happen in a number of ways which I'll, I'll go into but the third principle is about regenerating natural systems so while we're doing all of this thinking about um, maintaining our natural environment and restoring it in terms of keeping uh, goods in use for as long as possible, uh, we think about things like redesigning, avoiding uh, material consumption where possible, reusing, uh, repairing things, sharing, remanufacturing, recycling, and as a last resort, sort of moving towards um, energy from waste, for example. But the aim is to sort of keep goods circulating at, at, at higher value for as long as possible before sort of, you know, moving down the chain into, you know, recycling and, and disposal and that kind of thing. So in this concept, there is kind of a hierarchy and designing out waste and avoiding waste is, is really the top of the list. And what can you tell me about collaborative consumption or the sharing economy? What exactly does that entail? Collaborative consumption, the sharing economy, it's kind of appeared over the last decade and you might be familiar with lots of online platforms that enable people to share goods. So some examples include like, you know, bike share in many countries. The idea is that 
people don't need to own everything that they use. Um, so the things that you use occasionally, for example, like a, a ball gown or some camping equipment, for example, those are the sorts of things that you could share and you could sort of, you know, maybe rent or share on a kind of a peer-to-peer -peer basis. So the idea with that kind of movement is, yeah, it's an innovative new way to consume and it also has the potential to drastically reduce the impacts of our consumption. So yeah, there's, there's lots of interesting examples out there. There's, you know, tool sharing. A lot of people have garages full of tools that they rarely use, for example. There are all kinds of interesting ones in the kind of clothing industry, for example, you know, clothing subscription or a rental and uh, like sort of short-term rental of, of particular items or subscriptions of kind of like a box of new clothes each month, not new, rather um, shared clothing that you will, you know, rotate. So it kind of enables people to have access to goods and access to a diversity of goods potentially without owning everything and without contributing to this, you know, mass increase of consumption. Realistically, how far away do you think Australia is from a circular economy model being implemented here? It's been gaining momentum. We were doing a lot of policy work in 2018, sort of doing investigations for state governments in Australia. And there was a lot of work going on globally, and there still is, trying to figure out how we can enable a circular economy. It's a long-term ambition because it's really fundamental to like the way we consume and produce um, and so it requires a lot of change and I think it has started primarily with recycling because the movement has coincided with this recycling crisis that we've had with exports of, of our recycling but I think ultimately it needs to kind of move up the chain in terms of thinking about how you know how businesses um, provide uh, goods to consume how producers design and produce those things so it's quite comprehensive and I think we're we're just at the beginning of that journey really so there, there is a long way to go but there is a lot of enthusiasm and I am constantly receiving calls from governments and businesses who are interested to get on board and, and be part of that change. Well, of course, a lot of your work through the university is done at a policy level. So what should governments be doing to drive sustainability? What do you say when you get those calls? There's a lot to discuss and it kind of, we're getting to the stage now, I think we've been talking a lot about sort of policy principles and there's kind of a high level thing. So some of the things we talk about are around um, design standards. For example, in Europe, they have the EU design, the Eco Design Directive, and that kind of sets standards around the way products should be designed and and also thinking about the you know the lifespan of our goods and durability and and you know having producers be responsible for the end of life of their products so extended producer responsibility is a big part of that in Australia we call it product stewardship um, there's also a lot of momentum around that in Australia at the moment but I also think it's quite challenging for particularly startup businesses who are innovating and using kind of new business models. It's really hard to get finance to start up. It's really hard for individual businesses to, I guess, operate without the kind of the ecosystem around it. So you kind of need like many small businesses and, and systems to work in order to really sort of get momentum for, for this change. So I think governments have a role to play in helping startups, providing incentives through tax, providing grants, incubator support, for example, to create that ecosystem of circular economy businesses. 
They also can implement policy, I guess, to support the development of markets, because um, that's been a real challenge in Australia because we don't really have any manufacturing and we're sort of moving towards onshoring a lot of this kind of circular economy activity that we need to sort of develop our manufacturing sector um, at the same time. And, and so, yeah, so policy needs to support that uh, market development as well. And what about corporates and businesses? What can they do to increase their ambitions for sustainability? Because, of course, consumers are looking for accountability from big corporates and ASX-listed companies and global entities as well now. I think what I've seen is that corporates tend to comply with regulation. It's, it's Sometimes they go a little further, but I think often they kind of move together. And I think that for corporates wishing to expand their ambitions, I think they could really look beyond regulatory requirements and look at, you know, looming environmental issues because the sustainability expectations of consumers and investors are increasing all the time and regulations lag behind. So governments really don't want to be ahead of the pack. They want there to be momentum in industry and in consumer demand before they implement those regulations. So I think corporates would have a lot to gain in being ahead of the pack and really helping to drive that. So I guess one of the things is there's a big movement towards extended producer responsibility, product stewardship schemes. There are just a couple of mandatory schemes in Australia, but the government is investing heavily in kind of supporting voluntary or sort of co-regulatory arrangements for product stewardship. And so that means companies are getting more involved with being in charge of the lifespan of their products and taking taking responsibility for that end of life and designing things so to minimise their, their ultimate impact on the environment. But I think corporates can also look ahead at some of the looming sustainability issues. So as we know, there's a lot of focus on packaging and plastics and, you know, single-use plastics. We've been talking about that for a while and everyone's quite aware of, you know, marine plastic pollution, for example. Um, But I think uh, awareness is growing right now about the huge impact of clothing. In Australia, I think people started to become aware that a lot of our clothing that goes to charity, for example, that's poor quality, ends up in these huge landfills in Ghana, for example, or, you know, falling into the ocean and, you know, towers of waste. A few documentaries recently have have shed light on that. So people are starting to understand that and they want to see change. Another thing which I think is, you know, just on the horizon is we know about uh, the impact of e-waste, like electrical and electronic goods, but I see very few businesses addressing this issue in terms of what they sell. In many cases, we're being sold very poor quality electrical goods, for example, that break pretty quickly. And what happens is those goods break, uh, we take them back to the store and the store says, no worries, have a new one. But there isn't a lot of like insight as to what happens to all those returns. Are we just buying e-waste? Like, and, and consumers are going to start to demand better, I think, you know, in terms of the durability and lifespan and repairability of, of goods because e-waste has a huge environmental impact as well and it's very polluting to process um, and recycle. So I guess another thing is that uh, corporates and businesses can think about the value propositions that can support a circular economy and starting to innovate around business models. So, you know, can they provide a service rather than a product? Are they able to avoid material consumption or enable kind of reuse through their business model arrangements? I think 
yeah, I think that would be um, really wise to start thinking about that because there's a, there's a lot of interest in this at the moment. And what about on an individual level? What are some everyday actions that people can take to combat the ever-increasing plastics and textiles wastage across the planet? Avoidance is key. Like if, if you can, you know, reuse packaging, for example, or, you know, reuse your coffee cup and use a, a reusable scheme, for example. Also, I guess thinking twice about, you know, purchasing new clothing, like do you really need it? How, how much are you actually going to wear it? And are there other ways you can access it if you need it once? Can you borrow it from a friend? Can you can you get it from a secondhand store? Can you can you rent it? Um, just just rethinking some of those things and also thinking about quality with all of these things, you know, like with your electrical goods, with your clothing, buy something that lasts longer and, you know, keeping things for longer, using good quality. There's there's so much impact in the production and in the disposal. So if you can avoid that, then then that will make a huge difference. It's a really hard one to get your head around sometimes, I think, particularly with the clothing and textiles, because obviously lots of consumers, women in particular, I would suggest, have that idea of retail therapy being good for the Mm -hmm. soul and doing something good for yourself and rewarding yourself. And so it's a shopping spree or And it's interesting to think about the impact that that can have on the environment and just going those few steps ahead and thinking, well, hang on a second, are there better things that I could do that would still fill my soul, but not necessarily end up with a whole lot of wastage? I know it's a huge thing and it's a huge practice change, you know, when, when that is part of a, like a self-care routine or something like that, it's, it's, it's super challenging, but I, I think kind of, yeah, acknowledging that that's happening is maybe the the step, the first step. I, I heard the other day that um, Australian Fashion Council had learned that Australians were consuming, I think it was 56 items of clothing per year. So per person, which is shocking. So it makes me think there's a lot of clothing being bought that's just going straight into the cupboard and <laughs> maybe not even being used. But I guess, I mean, a starting thing can be thinking about how much money is being spent and how it can be spent in other enjoyable ways. And maybe it's maybe it's a holiday. Um, there's other things to do. So, yeah, I acknowledge it's a challenge, but I guess, yeah, understanding that that it's having an impact is, is yeah, the first step. Dr. Monique Retamal, thank you so much for your time. Uh, how can our listeners learn more about what we've talked about here today? Where should they go? So I'm a research director at the Institute for Sustainable Futures at the University of Technology in Sydney. Um, so on our website, there are plenty of links to our projects. So yeah, feel free to, to look on there. You can also Google wellbeing wardrobe and you'll probably find our reports uh, on that topic as well. If you liked this podcast and would like to hear more Remarkable stories, you can find and subscribe to The Remarkables by Grant Thornton Australia on Apple Podcasts or Spotify.